the San Francisco Experience podcast. Brought to you by Jim Herlihy. Independent commentary from a Silicon Valley, California perspective for a global audience, featuring newsmakers, thought leaders, and authors. Season 18, Episode 20, On Learning to Heal, or What Medicine Doesn't Know, in conversation with author, Professor Ed Cohen. Our guest today is Ed Cohen, Professor of Women's, Gender, and Sexuality Studies at Rutgers University. He joins us from his home office in Brooklyn. Hi, Ed, and welcome to the show. Thanks, Jim. It's nice to talk to you. Well, Ed, before we launch into a discussion of your book, you highlight the distinction between the curing of modern medical science and healing. And, of course, you had your own life-changing experience with healing as a result of a chronic illness. So let's begin with curing versus healing. Is it the same? No, Jim, they are not the same. I like to say curing is not healing, and, and your doctor knows the difference. Curing is largely aspirational. The idea of curing is that whatever condition or symptoms or limitations that one experiences were, would somehow magically or not magically, but scientifically, I guess, be eliminated or negated so that you return to a state that you were in before anything happened. So curing is predicated on, I'm going to call it the fantasy, that nothing ever happened and you're just going back to the life that you used to lead. Healing is a completely different proposition. Mm. Healing doesn't necessarily entail getting rid of symptoms. It doesn't necessarily entail living a life without impingement. The way that I define healing is the vital capacity that we have as living organisms to enhance our lives in the conditions in which we live them. We always, as living organisms, have the possibility of becoming more of who we are and that becoming more vital than we are at any moment, including up to the point at which we're dying. For some people, dying is, in fact, healing, which someone who is trying to affect a cure would really not understand. Mm-hmm. Well, Ed, please share your biography with us. So, Jim, I am, as you said, a professor of women's gender and sexuality studies at Rutgers, where I've been teaching for 35 years. I have a PhD in modern thought from Stanford. I was actually trained in both literature and math before that. And in the process of getting my PhD, I also was trained in a clinical practice called psychosynthesis, which is a type of transpersonal psychology. So in addition to my uh, work as an educator, I've been working with people with chronic and life-threatening illnesses for the last couple decades in a practice that I call Healing Council. Mm-hmm. Very impressive. Well, Ed, let's launch into your book on learning to heal. I was fascinated by the premise of the book, 
curing versus healing. I was also fascinated by, I mean, many aspects of the book. I especially enjoyed learning about the French philosopher Henri Bergson and what he talked about the he talked about the elan vital the the life impulse but that's just one aspect i guess of what we're going to be discussing so at this point take it away ed let's talk about the book <laughs> well, well i'm so glad that you found an appreciation for bergson because he is one of my favorite philosophers and he is was an amazing human being The book, actually, on Learning to Heal, comes out of my own experience of having lived with Crohn's disease for, well, now 50 years. This Mm -hmm. is my golden anniversary, which I'm celebrating. I mean, that might sound a little weird, but I am celebrating because at the time when I was diagnosed, when I was 13, it wasn't clear that I would live this long. And so I'm very happy to have made it this far. Mm -hmm. And the book is structured around my experience of initially for 10 years being very acutely ill and then having a near-death experience in which I then had a profound, radically unexpected introduction to the possibility of healing, which none of my doctors had ever mentioned to me as a possibility. And in fact, when it occurred, my doctors were very surprised by it at the point where I finally got out of the hospital at a Stanford University hospital after having almost died and having had to have radical emergency surgeries and then spent a long time recovering from that. In my exit interview with my doctor, my surgeon, he said to me something that, you know, basically seared itself into my brain, uh, which was, he said, you are the sickest person I've operated on in five years who's still alive, Mm. and I have no idea how you got better so quickly. Gosh. And that really threw me for a loop because, well, you know, at the time I was 23, and I was probably pretty much in denial about how sick I'd been. Mm -hmm. That was one side of it. But the thing that really woke me up was this very esteemed Stanford surgeon saying the words, I don't know how you got better. That was something that nothing in my previous decade of intense medicalization you know, had ever occurred. I'd never heard a doctor telling me I don't know anything. Mm. I mean, much of what they did is try to tell me what was happening yes. to me, which they had particular ways of explaining, which weren't necessarily the best ways to explain things. But I took them in along with the medications and the treatments that I was given. I took in the ideas that my doctors had because I didn't know anything differently. But then I had this experience that was outside of the ways that medicine understood its own practice. And that opened up something for me where I started to inquire, well, what is this other thing that that they don't know about that seemed to have done, have, have had such good results for me. And in that process, I began to learn about healing. And I began to learn that you could learn to heal and that healing is a form of learning. And I was led to different kinds of teachers who have had their own healing experiences. And over the last four decades, I have myself refined those practices and 
helped others to learn to heal. So the book really is organized around my learning curve in relationship to healing. And it tries to understand why it is that medicine doesn't really tell us about healing anymore when for more than two millennia, healing was medicine's reason for existing. Mm -hmm. I mean, until the 20th century, what medicine did at best was to support and encourage what it understood to be the natural power of healing. At the beginning of the 20th century, when science tried, science, when medicine tried to become more scientific Mm -hmm. and less like an art, the notion of healing dropped out of medical discourse and medical training. So now if you look on Medline, which is the National Academy of Medicine database, comprehensive database, healing appears only tangentially as wound healing, as mental healing, as psychological healing, but not healing as an intrinsic possibility of what it means to be a living organism. Mm -hmm. So the book really is trying to understand it's not trying to say that there's something wrong with medicine or or biomedicine or scientifically based bioreductionist premises of contemporary medical practices. It's saying that in the shift to imagining that everything about us as a living organism can be explained in reductionist terms, that something vital what you were naming as Bergson saying, the élan vital, something vital drops out. And that something vital might, in fact, be something very important. It might be a resource that we can cultivate, that we can develop, that we can enhance, um, no matter you know what symptoms we may have or, or not have. Let's just come back to the scientification, if you will, of medicine. In your book, you outline... Of course, starting in the, about the 1850s and throughout the balance of the 19th century and well into the 20th century, the scientification, if you will, of medicine was taking place at a rapid clip. Now, we all have to recognize that there were some fantastic advances, particularly in Absolutely. pharmaceuticals, antibiotics. I mean, you reference in the book that you're alive today because of the good effects of antibiotics. So we're, we're not here to disagree with the scientification of medicine, but but you're absolutely right. Something critical was lost in this march, this 19th and 20th century march to scientify, if you will, medicine. Something important was lost in the sense that healing just kind of got ignored, or or healing was since healing couldn't be quantified in a scientific fashion, it it was given short shrift. Exactly, Jim. Beginning in the middle of the 19th century, there was a radical break in the way that science, bioscience, understood how living organisms exist in the world. I wrote a book prior to my current book that's called A Body Worth Defending Immunity, Biopolitics, and the Apotheosis of the Modern Body that interrogates what happened in the late 19th century where new concepts were developed that we now completely take for granted, one of which is what we call germ theory, mm-hmm. and another is what we call immunity. Immunity for 2000, more than 2,000 years had no medical, no biological meaning whatsoever. 
It was exclusively a political and legal concept, hmm. uh, and a very, very important one. Yes, it do with you know the ways in which well, large. I mean, it it comes from Rome. It had to do with the way that Rome was able to establish its empire and its hegemony throughout the Mediterranean basin. It got taken up in, in terms of the relationship between European monarchs and the church. I mean, it's why churches still don't pay taxes hmm. on their property. Huh. It's why people can claim sanctuary in a church. But it's only at the end of the 19th century that it began to take on this medical biological valence. And the reason that it was recruited by medicine was basically because germ theory introduced the idea that there are these pathogenic organisms that are microbes that live in the environment around us and that they have the potential for causing infectious disease, which we're in the wake of COVID, we are once again reminded of how salient that remains. But the problem with that particular theory was that if these microbes that are pathogenic are ubiquitous, then why are we not sick all the time or why are we alive at all? And so this idea of immunity and immune response was developed as an explanation that claimed that, oh, well, the, the reason that we're still alive is because we defend ourselves against the attack of these microbial agents. Mm -hmm. That was the beginning of a complete transformation in the ethos of medical understanding and also medical care, because what it did was it located the sources and the site of illness internal to the human organism. Prior to that, medicine from antiquity was what was called humoral, which meant that the body was comprised of four humors, yellow bile, I always get them wrong, phlegm, blood, black bile, yellow bile, and the, they were comprised of the elements, earth, water, fire, air, mm -hmm. they were modulated by the four cardinal qualities, hot, cold, wet, dry, and that health and illness was a matter of the balancing of humors, and that humors, because they were composed of the elements, were deeply influenced by the environment that you mm -hmm. were in. And so when what doctors tried to do was actually to support the natural power of healing by modulating how we lived in the environments in which in which we live and including our diet and you know the word diet that we have now comes from a Greek word in the Greek the word diet actually means mode of life it doesn't just mean what you eat it means everything about that you take in, that you put out, your entire relationship to the world around you, to other people, to the airs, to the waters. And that was, that theory prevailed up until the end of the 19th century. It was the yes. predication of, of public health. But when this new model of germ theory and immunity, like bacteriology and immunology, come into the world together in the 1880s, very quickly humoral medicine completely falls out of favor. Um, and instead, you know, as part of the desire to come up with more scientific explanations that physicians, sci scientists, experimental scientists began to rely purely on the, the presumption that everything that was important about health and illness 
took place within what, what, what is called the milieu interior, the inner environment, which is a little bit of a, a paradox, right? Because the envi- environment literally means that which surrounds us. Mm-hmm. So inner environment is kind of a little bit of an oxymoron. And that was the concept that was invented in the middle of the 19th century by Claude Bernard that completely transformed and provided the basis for an entirely new science of medicine. It's, and it is the basis of all contemporary scientific experimentation. Everything that takes place in a laboratory, every experiment on a mouse or a chimpanzee, or all, everything that, that bioscience does now is predicated on this assumption that the milieu that matters in relationship to our well-being is the milieu that takes place within our skin. Unfortunately, as we increasingly understand in relationship to global warming or to infectious diseases or in, in living in, in toxic environments, you know, that's actually empirically not the case. <laughs> as living organisms, we always live in the world. There's no such thing as an individual without a context. Mm-hmm. Right. And we only individuate in the world and the world is in us and we are in the world. Now, you related these major advances, scientific advances that influenced medicine in the late 1800s. And then in 1907, Henri Bergson, the French philosopher, comes along with his seminal work called Creative Evolution, I think. Mm-hmm. in which he, he posits this, I, I guess, in, in a sense, it was, it was in reaction to this over-scientification, if you will, of medicine. And mm-hmm. he essentially, I'm, I'm oversimplifying it, but he, he sort of puts his hand up and says, stop, wait a minute, there's more to health than just a reduction of all scientific principles. There is such a thing as the as the the life force, the the life impulse. He wrote that book in 1907. He was awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature in, what was it, 1927, mm-hmm. largely for that book. Talk to me about that, because that seems that book seems to, to represent a sort of a, a, a stopping point where he said, you know, wait a minute, we are, medicine is more than just all scientific theory. We're driven by this life force that, uh, talk to me about that and talk to me about his theories because that seems to be a major part of your healing of your healing practice. Absolutely. Well, first of all, Jim, creative evolution is, as the title would indicate, in a certain way a response to the ways in which Darwinianism was taken up at the end of the 19th and the beginning of the 20th century. But as you're saying, it's also an intervention into the kinds of knowledge production that science is invested in and trying to understand both on the one hand the power of that particular kind of analytic understanding of the material world. So he's not anti-science at all. Mm -hmm. He He understands that particular form of what he calls intelligence to be very instrumentally important in how it is that we are able to go on living in the world. But what he also understands is that there's more to living than just matter. 
Yes. The concept of Elan Vital, he introduces, and, and he says it in a really interesting way, because he's not trying to make a claim that we can know what it is. In fact, what he says about the notion of Elan Vital, like the vital force, is he says, I, he says I'm not a vitalist, but he says the, the notion of vitalism at least is a placeholder to remind us of what we can't know mm-hmm. so that we are able to understand that there is more to know, right? So that by introducing the, the idea of Elan Vital, he's saying there's something constitutive that we can't analytically apprehend, yes. but that intuitively, and he this is the, the way that he puts it, that intuitively we can enter into and that when we enter into that experience, then we can apprehend the world in, in, in a uh, more immersed way. Uh, it, it, for him, the issue is really about, the, about temporality, about how we experience time and being in the flow of time. But what he's really trying to affirm is, as the title of the book, Creative Evolution, is that we're creative beings. The problem with an analytic approach is it's very hard to understand how, through analysis, you create something that we don't yet know. Like, analysis is really great for understanding things that already exist, Mm -hmm. but it's not super helpful for taking this, you know, the next the step to bring in new possibilities. And so that's what I think Neon Vital is a way of naming something that we constitutively can't know through analysis, but we experience and that moves through us and that moves us. And that is for him in that book, the spark that keeps evolution unfolding through time. Coming back to your own practice of healing, of course, you experienced, as you relate in the book, you were at the Stanford uh, Medical Center uh, when you were 23, you were quite ill, and you would listen to music and you would would experience what you described as a trance. Mm. And talk to us about the, uh, how that experience assisted you to, assisted you in your your path of healing. Uh, Sure, Jim. That, okay, so in order to explain, I have to give just a little like background about me. Just I grew up in a family where my parents were Jewish, my father's a physical chemist, my mother was a Marxist, uh-huh. and they were profoundly dogmatically atheistic. So there was nothing spiritual, no everything. All that mattered was matter in my life. Mm-hmm. So. And that was sort of my mindset. And then I had this profound experience in the hospital first because I had a near-death experience. I had a bleed out from an undetected abscess mm. in my abdomen. So I had, you know, what people describe as an out-of-body near-death experience. So that was the first kind of shaking up of my materialism, though, you know, because I was in, I was in so much pain and I was dying. I really didn't dwell on it. Then when I emerged from emergency surgery and was in the ICU and then afterwards had to be hospitalized for a long period of time, as you were saying before, on antibiotics because my 
viscera were completely infected. During that period of time, I could put on my Walkman. This was in the days when we yes, had Walkman. Of course. And, and listen to music. And then somehow I could go into this kind of realm where it was very light. And I guess it reminded me of the space that I was in when I was in my near-death state. And I could take the light and I could just wrap it around the parts of my intestines and parts of my liver and that had been taken out. And I was just imagining that it was like pain management. It was like cushioning. Like it was like cushioning myself against the pain, even though I was on painkillers and whatever. And then I would just drop into just a deep, tranquil space in which it kind of freaked the, my nurses and doctors out because yes. they would come to the room and they would say something to me or try to, you know, call me to wake me up and I was gone. And then, but then they discovered if they just turned off the walk fence <laughs> that, that I, I'd come out of it. And, uh, and then after that, everybody was just like, well, okay, he's just listening to music. Uh, and it really wasn't until I had that interview with my surgeon in the exit where he said, you know, you're the sickest person I've operated on in five years. And I have no idea how you got better so quickly that it occurred to me, hmm, I wonder if those trances had something to do with it. That, you know, really, in, in a Bergsonian way, it was like that my mind was so analytic. I was so trained. You know, I have a degree in math. Mm -hmm. I have my father's a physical scientist. I, you know, that was like my entire perspective on the world. Mm -hmm. And yet this other thing happened intuitively, like mm -hmm. I had no training, you know, mm -hmm. no nothing happened. And it, it seemed to deeply matter, right? not just like in a psychological way or a spiritual way, but like in a material way, like I got better. Can, can I just pose a quick question there, Ed? Excuse me for interrupting. Sure, had you read Henri Bergson's work before this event? No, I hadn't. I see. No. Only like actually years later, I read Bergson. And the first time I read it, I real I was like, oh wait, this is giving me a way to understand what happened in that moment. Uh -huh. um, until then, I was very, as I say, you know, I was uh, raised as a dogmatic Marxist. I'm an academic. It's really not cool in academia to like be spiritual. Talk about, no, that's really. I mean, and one of the things, one of the things that was deeply healing for me about writing this book on learning to heal or what medicine doesn't know. It's precisely that it allowed me to heal the rift between my academic self and my healing self, which I had kept in two different worlds before. The reading Bergson was like the beginning of that in a certain way because it gave me a sense of, oh, wait, there is a deeply philosophical way of conceptualizing what happened that's not like woo-woo, but is rigorous and comes out of a long lineage of, of philosophical reflection about how we make sense of the world. And he, unlike other philosophers of his time period and of earlier time periods, and that he really was open to the possibility that there's always more to, not only there is there always more to know, but there's always more than we can know. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's 
like the difference. Yeah, so that's why I think what Bergson gave me. But no, I did. I hadn't read Bergson at the time. At the time, I was quite a Marxist. <laughs> for the benefit of our non-California listeners, define woo-woo for us, so that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's sort of new agey. Yeah, the woo. It's kind of like there are are different kinds of practices, different kinds. A lot of them are are things that are marketed. So it's not just that they're practices, but they're things that are sold or products, you know, that are seemingly supplemental to, you know, the ways that we understand Western rationality. They're not necessarily, how should I put it, well conceptualized. They may have some efficacy, you know, for certain people, how they work or why they work. There's a lot of hand. There's a lot of hand waving. A lot. Yes. I I just wanted to. I just want our our non-California listeners to know that woo that woo woo was not a scientific term. No, 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 no. It's an it's an anti-scientific term. Yes. And and I'm not. You know. I mean. I'm. You know. Obviously, disparaging. That's a not nice thing to do. But because. I mean, one of the things that I try to talk about in relationship to healing and some of the woo practices is that the way that science makes itself science, science can only make itself science by excluding forms of knowledge that it defines as Mm non-scientific, right? Science is always in relationship to Mm non-science. And there are kinds of knowledges, what another, my actual intellectual hero besides Bergson is a a French philosopher named Michel Foucault, and he refers to them as subjugated knowledge, things that are understood but then become disregarded or become devalued Mm. when scientific explanations replace them. Mm -hmm. And weirdly, or or not weirdly, but interestingly, Sometimes those things that have been disregarded as being non-scientific actually come back and turn out to be very scientific. So, like, my favorite example of this is what's called the enteric nervous system, which is the, the nervous system that enervates our intestines, right? And for much of the 20th century, the dogma within neurology was that the brain is the executive of the organism and that, you know, all commands came down from the brain and directed all of our limbs and our organs to function in certain kinds of ways. Despite the fact that in the early 1920s, there was a scientist who did have this question. He's like, well, if that's the case, why are there so many nerve endings in the gut? It seems like that's like, Mm. you know, overkill if it's just receiving messages. But for most of the 20th century, that was what medical students were taught. That's how gastroenterologists thought. I mean, nobody questioned that. It began to change a little bit, maybe in like the 70s. But but what really happened was that when psychiatrists started prescribing SSRIs, like the antidepressants, the serotonin mm-hmm. reuptake inhibitors, people started getting all kinds of intestinal symptoms. They got constipated, they got mm. diarrhea, they got bloating, they got cramps, whatever. You know, they got all kinds of things. And people were like, well, why should that be? Like, what's going on? And so they took a closer look. And guess what? It turns out 
that the gut has all the same neuroreceptors and makes all the same neurotransmitters as the brain. Hmm. In fact, most of the serotonin that we try to prevent the reuptake of with these SSRI drugs are actually produced by the gut. So at that point, they developed this theory that the gut was a second brain, like the brain in the gut. And what I love about that, how long have people been saying, listen to your gut? What yes. does your gut say? Gut, gut instinct. Mm -hmm. Exactly. But that's a subjugated knowledge. Like people, that's what everybody knew, except medicine didn't know it. And mm -hmm. then at the end of the 20th century, medicine came to understand, oh, that's actually scientific. So, you know, the point is really that medicine, it's not just medicine, science exists, all science exists by creating a boundary. And that boundary defines what is not science, and science is only science in relationship to what is not science. Mm -hmm. And Bergson, you know, tries to modulate that. That's what his intervention is. He's mm -hmm. like, well, that's important, but there are also other things mm -hmm. um, that are significant that may not appear to us in through the kinds of knowledge technologies that we understand to be scientific. Well, Ed, in the remaining few minutes of the podcast, do you have some closing thoughts for our listeners on this, this fascinating book, this fascinating weaving together of medicine, of philosophy, of healing, your own personal life experience? Any closing thoughts for our listeners about this fascinating book? I really wrote this book for one reason, which is that I think that healing is a very important value that has been disregarded in our culture, not just at the level of each of us as individuals, but at the level of all of us collectively. And that if we were once again to begin to appreciate healing as a vital possibility that is available to us, both as individuals and as collectives, and if we were to allow ourselves to desire that, that we might actually live in very different ways. And when I look at the world right now, not just in terms of people who are manifesting deleterious kinds of symptoms that we call diseases or illnesses, though there are many, but also in terms of how we live collectively, in terms of people having access to healthcare, having adequate food, having adequate shelter, you know, having adequate education, or if you look at the globe, and we see you know, we're living in a, on a planet that's increasingly toxified, where, you know, as you in California know, <laughs> climate change is having really strong effects on people's material lives in an everyday kind of way, that healing might be something that we, sh we might all want to consider that their world right now needs a lot of healing, I believe, mm -hmm. which doesn't mean that medicine doesn't have a lot to offer us. Medicine as a resource is great. And if people can have access to it by having, being able to pay for it or have it paid for, or having in, in, in countries where there are highly inadequate forms of medical care, if that could be distributed, you know, around the world more widely, that would, that it might be a healing phenomenon, but healing itself, if we took healing as a primary value rather than, say, profit, that we might live in a world that was a lot more convivial 
than the one that we're currently living in. Mm -hmm. So though my book is really, you know, focused around, as I said, my own learning curve around healing on learning to heal, what I also learned in that process it's not is that it's healing is not just about me. It's never about me. It's always about me as I am in the context of a world in which I live and that to which hopefully I can contribute some sort of healing resource. And Ed, where can our listeners buy a copy of <clears throat> On Learning to Heal? You can get a hold of my book through Amazon or through any of your favorite independent booksellers. But you can also go on to my own website, healingcouncil.com, which is the website for my counseling practice, uh, where I work with people with chronic and life-threatening illnesses. And there's a link to the to my book, my several books. And you can buy the book through healingcouncil.com. That would be the easiest thing to do. And Ed, in addition to your website, how can our listeners follow you in addition to your website? Well, I'm a little lame on social media, <laughs> but I do have an Instagram account. Okay. That's called Healing Council on Instagram. And it does have, I have links to, you know, various other podcasts and reviews and things about the book and pictures of my cats and my garden and things like that. <laughs> If you are an aficionado of social media, that's where you could find me. Well, Ed, I appreciate you coming on the show today to talk about your book on learning to heal and reminding us about the importance of healing in the context of today's medical push to cure a disease. There's certainly a place for healing, and your book really opened up that possibility to me. So again, I want to thank you. Oh, well, thank you, Jim. It's been a great pleasure. My pleasure. And for our listeners, today's episode is number 365 as the San Francisco Experience podcast embarks on its third year. You can listen to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, Pandora, or wherever you listen to your podcast. With listeners in 65 countries, our global reach continues to grow. This has been the San Francisco Experience with Jim Herlihy coming to you from San Francisco.